when we know we're worthy, it frees us up to be aware of so many other things. The irony is that when we don't feel worthy, when we're hustling for our worth, when we're striving to prove our worth, when we've got to get it right, when we're reading for signals that somebody may not think we're worthy or good enough, we're really focused on ourselves. Welcome to the Unconditionally Worthy Podcast. In this podcast, I will guide you on your journey to connect with the true source of your self-worth. Each week, we'll discuss barriers to unconditional self-worth, the connection between self-worth and relationships, self-worth practices you can apply to your life, and how to use self-worth as a foundation for living courageously. I'm your host, Dr. Adia Gooden, a licensed clinical psychologist, dance enthusiast, and a dark chocolate lover who believes deeply that you are worthy unconditionally. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. I'm so glad you're here and listening and we have an awesome episode for you today. Today I talk with my friend Dr. Darren Pierre and we had a really rich conversation about loving ourselves, being in relationship with other people, even when it's challenging, the power of self-forgiveness. We also talk about the connections between self-worth and effective, emotionally intelligent leadership. Darren breaks down the three components of emotionally intelligent leadership. And we talk about all of these things in a really uh, dynamic, interesting conversation. This is a conversation I really haven't heard before, and you are going to want to hear it. Darren also shares his wisdom for you on your journey to self-worth. So I really hope you tune in and listen to the end and let us know what you love most about it. I'd love to hear from you. Darren would love to hear from you. Join in conversation with us by leaving a review, sending me a DM or tagging, sharing this episode and tagging us on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. It's a rich conversation. I know that you're going to take so much from it on your self-worth journey. And if you're a leader, you are definitely going to want to hear what we're talking about. Hello, and welcome back to the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. We are here with Dr. Darren Pierre today, and I am incredibly excited to share my really good friend with you. Darren and I have been friends for probably around four years. Has it been five? Somewhere around four years. And he has just brought so much insight, wisdom, love to my life. And I'm really excited for him to share all of that with you all today. So Darren is a lecturer in the Office of Global Engineering Leadership at the University of Maryland College Park. His teaching is focused on college student development, student affairs, profession, and leadership within higher education. He has years of experience as a university administrator, a leader within the field of higher education, and is a contributor to many entity groups affiliated with higher education. Darren has authored journal articles, and in 2015, he authored a really powerful book that we'll be talking a bit about today, and it's called The Invitation to Love, Recognizing the Gifts, 
despite pain, fear, and resistance. And Darren has spoken nationally on the ideals of leadership, integrity, and authenticity. And again, Darren, I am so excited for you to be here, for us to engage in this conversation today, and for my listeners to kind of hear what you have to say and contribute to this conversation about self-worth. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited because this is a conversation, Adia, and I hope that the things that we talk about in this time together, people will take on in their own units, their family, their friends, and have this continued conversation from what we start right now. Awesome. Well, I'd love to start out, and this is how I start out all of my episodes with guests. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about your own self-worth journey. Let me tell you, I was sharing with you all uh, for context right before we started. I was sharing with the idea that I love this idea of self-worth and the conversation we're having because we go into New Year's or we go into new birthdays and like, okay, this year I'm going to find this relationship or this year I'm going to do this or this year I'm going to lose weight or this year I'm going to get my finances right. Self-worth, if I'm going to use a metaphor, biblically speaking, self-worth is the genesis our financial health, our physical health, our emotional health, our relationship health, that's the revelation. And so everything begins with self-worth. I can't talk about boundaries and relationships until I get to the root of self-worth. And for me, my journey is self-worth. And I think this is the journey for many, from my own understandings, it roots in our relationship with our parents. Uh, Mm -hmm. No matter how wonderful your parents were, or no matter how challenging they were, they are still human beings. And human beings are flawed and fabulous at the same time. And so for me, the journey of self-worth started with me getting root to the fact that where I learned my worthiness or where I had to unlearn the things around worthiness started with my parental unit. Mm, wow, that's so powerful. First of all, thank you affir- for affirming the fact that self-worth is this foundation for everything in our lives. And I just think it's also very powerful that you're linking self-worth to your experiences with your parents. And I think that's true for so many of us. I think, you know, I know that it's true for me, right? Our parents all have limitations, as you're mentioning. And I think as little ones, as kids, we usually interpret that as I'm not getting what I need or my parent isn't give me what I need because I am doing something wrong or I am bad or I am not good enough or I am not worthy. And really it's usually all about our parents, their their own stuff. But as kids, we interpret it as being about us. And then we can carry that with us for years and struggle with that for years. Because our parents... They are the gospel. When you're when you're four, your parent or guardian, whoever that parental unit figure is for you, they are the gospel of truth. And if they haven't unpacked and understood their power of their language and their words and how they use those towards you, it can have a lasting impact. You know, we talk about all the time when people have wonderful experiences with their parents and say, you know, I learned about my beauty. I learned about mm-hmm. my intelligence. I learned about everything from my parents. Well, in the same way, for some people, People, they had to unlearn some of the things about who they were around their intelligence, their beauty, and their worth based on those early deposits that their parents invested into them. And so for those parents out there who are raising little ones, uh, be mindful. You are the first architects of the blueprint of people's spiritual understanding of who they are and their self-worth. 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's such a message there, both for people struggling with their own self-worth to sort of go back and realize that their parents' treatment of them wasn't about them not being a good child or a good human, but was about their parents and their own challenges. And those of us, those people who are parents, right? Or people who are becoming parents, knowing that If you ground in your self-worth, you are much more likely to be an effective parent and to pass that sense of worthiness onto your child. Because there are also many a parent who says, you child are going to be the reason I feel worthy. So you got to achieve this much and look like this and act like this and go to this school and play this sport. And so if you can be a parent that doesn't need your child to prove you're worthy, what a beautiful space for that parent-child relationship to grow in versus putting all this pressure on the kid to live out your worthiness, which you know, as a therapist who's worked with a lot of young people, a lot of young adults, it doesn't work. It doesn't work out very well. It puts too much pressure and often causes some tension and disconnect and the child to pull away when they're old enough. And Adia, everything you said, friends who are listening to this, everything you said is the same thing about your partner. If you're mm. looking at your partner to be your your incubator of your worth, if you're looking at your partner to fill your void of where you don't feel love, it is going to cause tension, it's going to cause exhaustion. And the same way that it can cause separation with your children, when you were looking at them to be your deposits, which you should be, should be depositing yourself, you're going to, I have found in my own experience, I start to repeat those cycles with partners and that is detrimental to the full celebration of what that relationship can be. So I think that everything that Dr. Gooden just said, as it relates to parent-children relationships, has strong parallels to the intimate relationships we have as we get older. I mean, that's so true. I have, I've been down that road many, many times. <laughs> I've talked about it on the podcast. I mean, many relationships where I was riddled with anxiety and all of this stuff. And yeah, it just kind of eroded the relationship, right? There were other things that obviously weren't going to work, but it is just too much pressure. And I think the media, the movies, the rom-coms have done us a disservice by communicating that the point of partnership is to be completed, right? That you find someone who is to complete you versus you going into a partnership as a whole complete person, not a perfect person, maybe not a perfectly healed person, but a complete person who knows you're worthy, who's on that journey, and then seeks to partner with another whole complete person, that that is really the best foundation for a healthy and loving relationship. We are, we are getting right into it. One of the things that I would love you to talk about is some of the lessons, some of the wisdom that you share or that you gained as you were writing your book, The Invitation to Love. What a, what a powerful title and topic for a book. And so I'd love for you to just share a little bit about that book, about sort of the key lessons that you want people to take from it. You know, the the journey of the book started with me doing my PhD. And I think that sometimes challenging experiences of life where you experience challenge and where you are really, there's this acronym that talks about pain and it says that pain is pay attention inward now. Mm. In my PhD experience, and you don't have to go through doctoral education to have these types of exercises. Other things will invite them to you. But it was sitting in my own pain. Paying attention inward now is really what was the germination of 
this book, The Invitation to Love. And one of the key lessons that I got from the book, and uh, and, I'll t- and I talk about in the book that you referenced a little bit earlier, idea is that the ways in which people show up for us oftentimes has very little to do with us. And people activate the ways in which they are being and the ways in which they have been effective in doing it in the past. And the ways in which I saw this in the greatest place of clarity was I had watched the movie, The Color Purple. Mm -hmm. And I had seen that movie 18 times by this point. So this was probably 2012 when I was watching the movie again. And for the 18 times or 17 times previous that I watched The Color Purple, I thought of Mr. as the most evil person ever. Mr., for those of you who have not watched the movie The Color Purple, is the antagonist. He is in this relationship with a woman named Celie, and he's very verbally, physically abusive towards her. I watched it for the 18th time, and I said, oh my goodness, Mr. did not hate Celie. Mm-hmm. I believe he actually had deep feelings for Celie, but he had no capacity to express that. Mm-hmm. And how I saw that manifest was in the movie, if you've seen it, if you have not seen it, I highly recommend you see it. There's a scene where Celie says that she's finally having a breakthrough moment and she's going to leave Mr. And Mr. talks about how she's ugly, how mm-hmm. she can't cook, how she does all these things. And he's berating her with belittling her, trying to compromise her understanding of her work. And I was thinking to myself, his kids are grown. When he first started his relationship with her, it was so that she'd be a caregiver for his children. But his kids are grown at this point. So if he really hated her when she said she was leaving, he would say, yes, thank God. I'm so excited you're leaving. Mm. He belittled her and compromised her work because he was secretly wanting her to stay. Mm. And to mm. break her down, to feel like she was nothing, she, he was hoping with his intention being, you're right. Who would want me? I'm ugly. I'm black. I can't cook. Maybe I should just stay here. Mm. And so he had utilized those same tools throughout their relationship to do that. And she had internalized it all those years. But really, it was never about her because life had broke him down in that same way. And it had been effective in keeping him submissive and keeping him small and keeping him dim in his light. And so he was activating those same tools with her. Mm. So I shared this with a friend of mine and they were like, oh, Karen, no, no, that's not it. Then I watched a documentary about Alice Walker. Mm. And Alice Walker was asked about the movie, The Color Purple. Alice Walker, for those who don't know, she wrote the book, uh, which is the adaptation of the film version of The Color Purple. And she said, what I don't like about the movie is it never showed the reconciliation between Mr. and Seeley. She mm. said, because Mr. and Seeley is the story of my grandparents. Mm. And what I realized is that my grandfather had deep love for my grandmother. What he had was an inability until his later years in life to express it adequately and appropriately. Mm. We've got to, I, I don't want people to stay in abusive relationships and say, you know, well, this person loves me. No, 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 no. Because what she needed to do was break the cycle and mm-hmm. she needed access to her work. And what she was clearly understanding Celie and who I'm talking about now was that that was not working for her. But for her to leave that experience, continuing to hold on to the resentment that that man is the devil and he is evil. It's not to honor. He is a person who has not responded appropriately or properly to his pain. Yeah. And so the invitation to love, recognizing the gift despite pain, fear, and resistance, that is about understanding you leave Mr. in that relationship 
but you also leave the resentments behind. Mm-hmm. Because let go of that. He's not evil. He just has pain that has not been responded to. And yeah. that has nothing to do with you. So you can leave not thinking that he is some criminal that needs to be persecuted or that he is this antagonistic figure that we often want to portray people as. But they are simply people who are in pain. And I don't have to entertain that experience in my life. I also don't have to carry that with me to the next dimension Mm. where I'm going. And so I hope as people read the book, they are able to see for themselves, as I was able to see through my doctoral journey, how other people's ineffectiveness is showing up for us. It's not a moment to demonize. Uh, It's actually a moment to humanize, humanize them and liberate ourselves and our understanding that that ways in which they were being, which showed up ineffectively for us, had nothing, nothing, nothing to do with us. I mean, that's so powerful, right? It's so powerful and nuanced, right? What I hear is you have to hold together the acknowledgement that this person is not treating you well, right? That this person is treating you in ways that may be harmful, that are not acceptable, that you can set a boundary while also not taking on their bad behavior as being about you and also not saying they're just the most evil person in the world. And, you know, it sort of requires this nuance and what I see as forgiveness, right? Like what is the process of forgiving the situation? And so often people think of forgiveness as going to the person who's hurt you and say, I forgive you. Now let's reconcile and be together. But what you're saying is you break up with Mr. You don't necessarily go back to him, but you in your heart, regardless of whether you tell him, say, you know, I forgive. I am releasing myself of that burden. Because I I, I not talk about this in the book. I see forgiveness as a clear understanding of a set of events um, accurately. So I accurately see a set of events. I accurately, oh, I get it now. You said those things to try to break me down. Mm-hmm. You said those things because those were the power dimensions that you've utilized in the, in the mm-hmm. past. I get it now. I forgive you because I see the set of events accurately now. Yep. I'm not a person of no worth. I'm not a person of no beauty. That was the mechanisms, the tools you utilize to keep me captive in a relationship that doesn't work. And I think that, you know, and this is based on Alice Walker's experience of how she saw her grandparents. So I want to honor that. I think that that's an appropriate way to look at it because, you know, Celie was probably told 55 times. She was told in the movie and she's told in the book, you need to leave him. He's a dog. He don't care nothing about you. We say these things and they may not necessarily be the truth. What is the truth is you need to leave. But I don't, I can't argue what he feels for her. Mm-hmm. But just because someone loves you doesn't mean that you need to be with them. It's like you pull a stray cat off the street. The cat may love you deeply, but the cat's never been home trained. That doesn't mean the cat stays in your house because they love you. They love you deeply. They just were never properly introduced to how to love effectively. Mm-hmm. So people's permission to leave should be based on people's ability to love you effectively, not whether or not their bank account has love in it for you. I'm not going to argue that. Yeah. We're going to argue how her grandfather felt about her grandmother. But what is clear and objectively speaking can be argued is that his ability to express it was absolutely ineffective. Right. Right. And that's the space I think people need to leave in because Mm -hmm. you're trying to let love keep you there. Love will keep you in a terrible place. Mm -hmm. The self-worth can get you out. 
Well, and that's the thing, right? And, you know, I think one of the things I I help my clients with is, you know, let's say they've had a challenging experience with a parent, right? Part of what we work on is acknowledging and validating their experience, right? That can be a really important first piece because sometimes very commonly people invalidate their own experience, the harm that they experience. And so saying, yeah, that was harmful. That was hurtful. That made me feel this way. That was painful is important. And then when they're ready, what I try to help them do is contextualize their parents' behavior. So I might ask questions like, well, what do you know about what your mom was going through at the time? Or how did your mom grow up? What was your mom's life experience? And usually what we find, the parent was experiencing some pretty intense stress. The parent experienced trauma in their own life. Their parent experienced trauma. Like we find these cycles of trauma and trauma reactions and all of this stuff. And when we put it in context, it doesn't mean, well, I'll never set a boundary with my mom because she had this trauma and that's why she's treating me with this May. It means, wow, my mom was in so much pain that she couldn't show up for me in the way that I needed her to show up for me. And sometimes she still can't. So I'm going to acknowledge that while also acknowledging that the harm she caused was real. And so then I'm going to set a boundary, right? And I think the piece is people often don't realize that boundaries can actually support connection, right? They they can foster the, the relationship instead of it's a cutoff. I'm never speaking to this person again. And sometimes there are people that it's like, you know, it's just completely toxic and you don't need to speak with them again. But sometimes it's, okay, this is how I'm willing to engage with you, right? Understanding where you're at, understanding where I'm at, this is how we can do that. And all of this is is so nuanced, which I think is such a wonderful contribution that you're making, right? Because it is so much easier to say, Mr. is evil, throw him away, cancel him, cut him, right? Or Celie is weak. Why would she stay? Right? Like it's just easy to do these sort of like cut and dry, black and white sort of way of thinking about it. But the reality of life is that it's nuanced, it's complex, and we need to sort of get used to holding all of these things together, holding a desire to stay and a fear of leaving with a knowing that you need to leave, right? And honoring that and not beating yourself up and saying, well, why do I even want to stay in this relationship? Well, because there's something that you like about it or you enjoy about it. Can you honor that while also honoring your boundaries, honoring your needs? And that's really where like the grounding in self-worth is so powerful. Because sometimes to love is to leave. Mm. To love myself is to leave. To love you is to leave. Because what I'm understanding is what we co-create together works very little for both of us. And so I love myself enough to leave. I love you enough to say what we co-create. It's not workable. It's not something we can be proud of. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, you know, I think another piece of this often is self-forgiveness, right? That's, I talk a lot about self-forgiveness on the pathway to self-worth because so often people are carrying with them. Why did I stay? Why did I get in that relationship? What was wrong with me, right? The beating yourself up and this power of how do you forgive yourself? How do you forgive them? Because that is what brings you peace, right? Holding resentment against yourself or other people 
it's toxic. It's exhausting. It doesn't fix anything. All it does is keep you stuck to that pain. And so the peace comes from the forgiveness, from the acknowledgement. And that really helps you to remind yourself like, no, I, I was worthy of being treated better. And I'm sorry, I didn't honor my own boundaries, but I didn't know how at the point. So I forgive my younger self and I know I'll do different in the future. Because I think uh, two things that occur for me as you were sharing that idea is uh, peace is a process. Mm. Peace is a process. Mm. I, I love that. This, I don't want you to leave this podcast and be like, Ooh, okay, I got peace now. Mm. Peace is a process. It's a process. I, I, I see it as that. Uh, and the second is, you know, not only do you need boundaries, you know, with your loving relationships with an intimate partner, but you might need boundaries with your kids. You know, I, I share my book about my nephew, Micah. I love my nephew, Micah. Love, 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 Micah. So Micah hears us now that I love him deeply. <laughs> when he was three, though, he would work my nerves. And there was one time where he had worked it to the last core. And I remember how words had been used violently against me as a child and mm. it was a place of anger and people were utilizing the tools that they knew best at the time. But I also at my age now know the responsibility I have with my words. And so there was a time when Michael was three. I was like, I was having an internal dialogue about Michael that was less than loving. Mm. And I had to set a boundary. The boundary was I needed space. Mm-hmm. Michael, I need you to go to your room for a little bit. I needed him to go to his room because I needed to have that boundary. After a couple of minutes, we were back together. He said, Uncle Darren, can you play video games with me? And I said, "Mm, not right now, Micah. I still need his space. Parents, you know, who have the resources and the ability, it's okay for you to send your kids to daycare if they need to go to daycare. If it's just like me with my nephew, it's okay for you to go to another room and say, I'm not able to have this conversation with you right now, even when they're three and they've gotten into trouble. It's okay for you to take 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. collect yourself, and then come back to that place because you don't want to use words that are deposited can never be taken out. Yep. So when you put that deposit in that bank account of their worth, you can't take that. You, you can say sorry, but the words still have left the inference. So sometimes those boundaries are not only with, you know, grown people, yep. the, the little people who we love in our lives as well. That's so true. I mean, I think one way we could frame what we're talking about is self-leadership, mm-hmm. right? Leading ourselves courageously through life. And you're an expert on the topic of leadership and authenticity and integrity. And so I'd love for you to say, share how you think about these ideas. How do you think about leadership and what are sort of some of the intersections between self-leadership, self-worth and being a leader in general to other people or with other people? Because, you know, people will be like, okay, now how's the marriage between self-worth and the book? How does that connect to leadership? Well, the history of leadership, when we look at the early 1900s, was the great man theory, trait-based leadership that kept a lot of people, kept brown people, kept women, mm. kept people with intersectional identities outside the conversations of leadership. Over time, we've seen that change and we've seen other leadership theories come into play. We saw that during the civil rights movement and some of the theories around leadership, transformational leadership during that time. Now we're living in an era where we are having more conversations around authentic leadership, around spirituality and um, and leadership, and around emotional intelligent leadership. And I'm going to take a moment and focus on that last one, emotional intelligent leadership. Emotional intelligent leadership is really a three-pronged approach. And it's about, um, there's a book that utilizes a Wi-Fi symbol. You know, there's like Mm. a pre- 
bars for a Wi-Fi. You got full signal. You have three bars. That's emotional intelligence. The first bar is conscious of self. How am I self-aware of who I am and how I show up in spaces? The other is conscious of others. How am I aware of other people's circumstances, where they're coming from and where they're at? And then the, and the third which gets us the full connection is conscious of context. What is the context mm. we're having these conversations? And so when I think about these conversations around self-worth and how do they connect to leadership, it all comes together in emotional intelligent leadership because mm-hmm. we can practice emotional intelligence when we're at home with our partner and they've gotten on our last nerve because <laughs> I had just come off of a day at work that was not good. So I need to be conscious of myself. And when I come home, I might need to tell my partner, hey, I just want to let you know, I am really on nerve one. I had a hundred nerves when I left here this morning. 99 <laughs> of those left with my supervisor. So with the one nerve I got left, I want to let you know that that's where I'm at so that you don't hit it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't be on the last nerve. Don't be on the last. Because that's what that's when the concert happens. And you don't want to stay here. But that's being conscious of myself. Mm-hmm. And that's being okay. conscious of others. I don't want my partner to feel the wrath of me in, inappropriately and conscious of the context. Mm-hmm. The context of our relationship is not that of my supervisor. And there are some people, going back to our earlier conversation, there are some people right now who are arguing with their husband, with their wife, with their partner, which is the argument they should be having with their mother, their father, mm-hmm. their guardian. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you're unconscious, if you're not, if you're not conscious of yourself, if you're not conscious of others, yep. and you're conscious of your context in which you're having your conversations, you're going to have no connectivity utilizing that metaphorical Wi-Fi symbol. Mm. And uh, and leadership is all about relationships. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that your audience is able to take from that one example of one leadership theory, emotional intelligent leadership, and see how it directly and intricately connects to this conversation around self-worth, this conversation um, that we're having around understanding forgiveness and, and, and all these various components that are, are complements to that conversation on self-worth. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, that theory in such a real-world way. I made it very tangible. And I, you know, one of the things that came up for me as you were sharing is self-worth as sort of this a foundation for emotional intelligence and emotionally intelligent leadership. And, you know, thinking about when we know we're worthy, it frees us up to be aware of so many other things. The irony is that when we don't feel worthy, when we're hustling for our worth, when we're striving to prove our worth, when we've got to get it right, when we're reading for signals that somebody may not think we're worthy or good enough, we're really focused on ourselves, right? There's there's a really big self-focus and everything becomes, they must not like me. They must not think I did good enough. They must not, right? And it's very hard to be emotionally intelligent in that context. I'm not saying that people cannot, but it's sort of a block. It it makes it more difficult. But if you're grounded in your worthiness, if you know I'm worthy, then you can be aware of your thoughts, feelings, emotions without judgment, without self-criticism, without what's wrong with me that I feel this way. But okay, this this is a harder day or my mood is off or I'm tired or whatever. And that's just where I am. So I can acknowledge it. And then sort of as you were saying, I can tell my partner or I can tell someone and see how it impacts in relationships. And then I also have the awareness of like, it's not all about me and what people think of me. So I could, oh, they look like they may be having a hard day or a challenging time or whatever. And then what is our context, right? So I think of self-worth as just 
providing us this grounding. So what would be a metaphor I could use? So like if, if somebody's building a house, right? If they never build a strong foundation and they still build the house, those scaffoldings are going to need to be up there, right? Because you take the scaffoldings away, everything might crumble. So you guys kind of got these scaffoldings. You can't really see the house. If you're in the house, you can't really see out, right? You're, and you're kind of always like, oh gosh, was that a sh- is this going to crumble, right? Because you know you don't have a strong foundation. But if you build that strong foundation of self-worth, it gives you the confidence to build up and out. And you, you can show up with your house. You can see out. You let other people see in. You feel, right? You're not always sort of worrying and hiding and protecting, right? Because you know you have that foundation. So it frees us up to show up in the world confidently and, and bring what we have to bring, Right. And be in relationship without a bunch of walls and scaffolds. As I see self-worth, and you're my self-worth expert, my friend, but I see self-worth, and I don't know if they're siblings or first cousins, but I see self-worth having a strong family, familial relationship with security. Mm. And you have low self-worth, I am not in high confidence that you have high levels of security. Mm. And insecure people can make ineffective managers. And if you want to know if you're ineffective as a manager or as a supervisor, which is a positional space of leadership, then look at your security of your foundation. Because Mm. insecure managers are those who micromanage. Insecure managers are those who show up ineffectively. And it's directly tied, again, I don't know if they're cousins or if they're siblings, (laughs) but I think insecurity is directly tied to self-worth. Because if I'm fully secure in my self-worth, I'm fully grounded in who I am, I honor my fabulousness and I honor my flaws. Mm -hmm. And I can sit with the person, the team I'm leading, and say, hey, I don't, I don't know this. Or can you tell yes. me a little bit more about this? Or I'm feeling nervous about X, Y, Z. And you can really be in that space of vulnerability of allowing yourself to be seen. Because you know that allowing yourself to be seen and your fabulous and your flawlessness does not have any dictation of your work. You're worthy whether you understand it or whether you don't. You are worthy whether you, you know, are able to move this forward or you're not. And you're able to come to people and that honesty without having to utilize this facade of always having it all together. I think that's so powerful, right? I think most of us have had the experience of a micromanaging boss. And it is, for me, is terrible. Terrible. Like, it's it's so funny. I've been seeing all these memes because I'm a Gemini and seeing all these memes about how Geminis don't like being told what to do. And I'm like, yep. So micromanager and me is like, it's not going to work. Right. But I think what happens is if people don't trust themselves, right, they're insecure, then they don't trust other people. Then they're anxious. Then they're micromanaging. And ultimately, that's disempowering and demotivating. Right. But if you trust yourself, if you're willing to be wrong, if you're willing to be vulnerable, if you're willing to say, I don't have all the answers, I know a process that will help to get to the answers. And I'm also hiring and getting people on my team that I know are talented and skilled and wise in different areas. And I'm excited to empower them to share that because I don't need to know everything. That's when you create, I think, magic on a team, right? Because you're not, 
well, it's, I've got to be right. It's got to go through me and it's got to be my way. You're, I have a process. What do you all think? Oh, you're, you know, Janine, you're excellent in this area. I know you have some wisdom. What would you contribute to this conversation? Right. Jericho, what would you say? Right. Like whatever it is. And that's when you get this, this, this powerful team and you help other people to see that they belong, right? That challenges imposter syndrome, which is another thing that's connected to self-worth, right? But if you empower people to contribute, you're going to challenge the idea that somebody is an imposter because you're you're highlighting their contribution. So I, I think that it's such a powerful reminder for those people who want to be leaders that grounding yourself in your self-worth isn't selfish. It actually is going to help you to lead other people and to model what it looks like to be emotionally intelligent, to acknowledge vulnerabilities and that they're not weakness to empower your team. Absolutely. Well, you know, as we sort of wrap up and wind down our conversation, which I just think has been so rich, I'd love for you to share if you have any thoughts or suggestions for people as they're going along their self-worth journeys. Yeah, um, I'm going to give two. One is, is I think that journaling, and I'm a big believer in meditation, but I believe meditation takes many forms. And one of the definitions that I heard of meditation that I really stuck with me is meditation is the rehearsal of words that you find to be true. Hmm. So some people may find that through a religious text. Some people may find that through a good book. Um, I found that reading The Color Purple. You know, they can be a whole host of places. But Find yourself and situate yourself a couple of minutes every day in words you believe to be true and journal that for yourself where you're making meaning of either the experiences of another or some type of text that gives greater insight and clarity. The second is, and this is kind of a tangible thing, is it's a paradigm shift, I think, that I try to utilize in my own life that kind of continues on the self-work journey is when I apologize to others, what is the apology I'm giving to myself? Mm. When people apologize to me and they're doing it from place of sincerity, inviting them to consider what's the apology they're giving themselves. Mm. But let's go back to the Micah story. I would have had a moment where I lashed out of Micah, like, I don't know why you did And I go and I apologize to Micah later. The apology I need to give to myself is talking to a therapist about how do I manage my voice and my words mm. differently. Mm-hmm. Or if my partner is coming to me in a way that is ineffective, where is my partner going? to have a conversation somewhere else to attend to that not happening again. But because our apology that we continue to offer over and over again becomes mute at some point. Mm. The apology mm-hmm. we offer others becomes mute at some point. We continue to repeat the same thing. I'm so sorry for being late. I'm so sorry for being late. Well, about the 15th time I'm being late, you're the late person. So no Are you talking true. about me, Dan? <laughs> You're just a late person with no integrity. So what I need to tell myself is I need to give myself more time or I need to tell people, listen, I try to get there at 1130, but 11.45 might be my ministry. You know, that's what, you know, it's, it's setting anew. It's recalibrating. So that's one way I think your audience, uh, well, two ways rather, I think your audience can continue on the self-work journey is to journal, utilizing words that they see to be truth and continue to sit with those regularly on a daily basis. And the second is really do a paradigm shift of how they consider apologies, not only the apologies they receive from other people, but more importantly, the apology they offer to others. Yeah. I mean, both of those things are so powerful. I think starting your day with some sort of intention, right? And I think meditation is a powerful way to do that. That's something I do every morning. 
there's an onslaught of things, news, social media, comparing, and it's so easy to start your day just in a in a space of reacting. But if you take a few minutes to journal, to meditate, to read or listen to something, you're sort of setting out what is my what am I going to focus on or ground myself in some truth today no matter what is coming at me. So I think that's incredibly powerful. And then the Oh, go ahead. I want to add one more thing. And that might be through, you might wake up in the morning and go for a walk and put on Mary J. Blige just fine. I'm just, I'm I'm good. I'm great. I am an amazing person. That might be your, that's still rehearsal of words of truth. The form in which you're doing it is not in a written form, but it is on a bicycle in the morning. It's putting on your tennis shoes and going for a walk. It's getting on a treadmill. But those are all of that is activating your own internal bank of self-worth. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's about finding what works for you because what works for you may not work for other people. And that's okay. It just needs to work for you. So I think that's powerful. And then I think the the other piece you were saying about apology is really powerful. And what came through for me in that is, is honesty and accountability. And I think so often people think in order to be accountable, I have to be harsh and critical and mean to myself. And a lot of what we're talking about is that's not necessary. You can hold yourself accountable in a compassionate way. And actually, I think then it's more powerful. It's more powerful to say, you know, I have an issue with being late or I keep reacting in this way and saying things that are harmful and I don't really mean. And instead of saying, I'm an awful person, I'm so horrible and shaming yourself, which just makes you feel like you can't do anything about it. You can say, okay, okay. All right. Now what's, what's happening here? What do I need to process? What do I need to think through? Who do I need to talk to, to understand what's coming up in me that I'm having this type of reaction that's not aligned with my values? And how do I kindly hold myself accountable to make some changes and figure out how I do things differently moving forward? Because I want to be in good relationships with other people. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Darren. Your wisdom is so rich and I'm so grateful that I have you in my life and that we have the opportunity to share this with so many people. I know people are going to want to find you. So please tell people where they can connect with you online, where they can buy your book, all of that good stuff. Well, ditto, Dr. Adia Gooden. Ditto, ditto, ditto. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's such an honor to be with you and to be with your audience. And thank you all for taking time out of your busy day to uh, listen to our insights. And I would love to connect with you. So the ways in which you can connect, if you want to learn more about the book, uh, you can go visit my website, which is uh, theinvitationtolove.com. You can also find the book at your major online retailers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, different things like that. You can also... conversation connected with you and you want to have continued conversation, feel free to reach out to me at Darren, so it's D-A-R-R-E-N, at theinvitationtolove.com. Because uh, I hope that, as I mentioned before, I think about peace as a process. This journey of self-worth is a process. And so one book, one podcast is not going to get you there, but hopefully they uh, give you the invitation, no pun intended, to continue on that journey and to continue to recommit yourself to that journey of unconditional self-worth. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your energy, your wisdom, your love with us, Darren. I so appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me this week on the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. Make sure to visit my website, dradiagoodin.com 
and subscribe to the show on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. You can also follow me on social media at Dr. Adia Gooden. If you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes so we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Lastly, if you found this episode helpful and know someone who might benefit from hearing it, please share it. Thanks for listening and see you next episode. This episode was produced by Chris and Tiana and the music is by Wadaboy.